You ain't searching shit, you got a warrant? to Justice Radio, Acumen Law Corporation's podcast. Hi, I'm Paul Doroshenko. I'm a lawyer with Acumen Law Corporation. Today I want to talk to you about what happens when the government makes fundamental changes to drinking driving law in this country. So we have right now, before Parliament, a piece of legislation that would change the way that drinking driving cases are handled, right from the investigation through to the trial and, and to the end of the matter to sentencing. The Proposed legislation does a lot of things, and we're going to talk about it more in depth later on in other podcasts, videos, and blog posts, but sort of the fundamentals of it are are the government is making it so there's random breath testing, so anybody can just be pulled over at any time and be forced to provide a sample into a roadside breath tester. They're also looking at getting rid of uh, uh, the provision that says over 80 milligrams and 100 milliliters, over 0.08, and making it 0.08 and above. Uh, that is a substantial change, although it doesn't look like it is because it, uh, it it really comes down to the evidence that's there, and it's a very problematic matter. They're also looking at getting rid of cases where you haven't absorbed the alcohol that you've consumed, so you might drink two, three ounces of, of alcohol and uh, and do that on a full stomach, and it will take a long time before it's absorbed into your blood and affect your driving. They want to take away that uh, as a defense. Essentially, you know, you may be innocent, but they want you to be convicted. They also want to uh, eliminate uh, basically your right to get disclosure. In many cases, your right to get the evidence from the police that would show that you're innocent. So these are the changes that are proposed by the government and are going to be voted on by our parliament and ultimately our Senate. I don't want to talk to you about those changes today. I want to tell you a little bit about what happens when we see a substantial change to legislation to our drinking driving laws in this country. So the last time we had a substantial change was under the Conservatives. Most of these changes are something that's pressured, pushed on uh, the government by Mothers Against Drunk Driving and, and some police officers who seem to have the government's ear. And back then, their big concern was something called evidence to the contrary. So the criminal code said prior to that legislative change that if you could call evidence that sh- would show that your blood alcohol concentration was under 80 milligrams and that evidence was accepted by the judge, then the readings that would show that you're over 80 milligrams, the readings from the breathalyzer, would not be evidence that would be considered. They wouldn't get the presumption that those readings are accurate, uh, reliable, and reflected your blood alcohol concentration at the time of driving. That was an important law that we had in this country and it was a procedural protection and a protection written into law to make sure that innocent people weren't found guilty. You can have a breath alcohol concentration that does not reflect what your blood alcohol concentration is. So remember we're taking breath from a person and saying that that's going to reflect what blood is and that's not always the case. Your, uh, Your breath alcohol concentration, all the machines, all the breathalyzers in Canada are designed to assume that you have the same what's called breath-blood ratio as their machine. So their machine is designed with uh, the theory that 2.1 liters of uh, exhaled air will have the same amount of alcohol as one cubic centimeter of blood. Not everybody has uh, 2,100 to 1 or 2.1 liters to, to one cubic centimeter and your 
Breath blood ratio is going to change over time, change over uh, how much alcohol you've absorbed, and it's going to change over with breathing patterns. It's also going to change depending on your body size and type, and it's never been really studied to the extent that it should be, but that's just one of the many reasons that the uh, breath alcohol concentration might not reflect what your blood alcohol concentration is. So if you take blood at the same time and test your breath, you can get two very different readings. One may say that you're over uh, 0.08, and one might say that you're under 0.08. But in Canada, you're not uh, entitled to have a, a blood sample. Uh, if the police make a demand for a sample of your breath, you're required to provide that, and that's the evidence that goes before the court. So we had evidence to the contrary. You can testify, explain what you had to drink. Typically, a toxicologist uh, would also be called by the defense to explain what your blood alcohol concentration would have been based on what you say you had to drink. And if that evidence was believed by the judge or accepted by the judge, then it would impeach the readings. And that was a defense that was available. It was a smart defense. It was a good defense. It was a fairly rarely used defense in my experience. I can tell you I've been doing this a long time, and uh, I only ran that, uh, that argument twice in my career. But uh, it was something that the police felt was being exploited, and it was often mocked by Mothers Against Drunk Driving and the police. They called it the two beers defense. And so they pre- pressured the government, and the Harper government was very receptive to their pressure to change this, to eliminate this law. So Harper government introduces legislation. Legislation comes into effect on July 1st, 2008, and it said, no, you can't run an evidence to the contrary anymore. You've got to prove a bunch of other things. You've got to prove that the breathalyzer was malfunctioning or operated incorrectly. You've got to prove that that's what would have led to the readings, the erroneous readings, and then you've got to prove what your blood alcohol concentration was. Huge, huge task. Uh, And the police are the holders of the evidence, so it was something you could never do. They basically eliminated, in all respects, evidence to the contrary. Now, we knew that this was going to be subject to challenges to that law, and it was, and uh, it's gone to the Supreme Court of Canada. That took four years, and it's, it's still something that's that's in the courts. It's a regular active thing. It's going to be litigated for for decades to come. And I can tell you that in all likelihood, some innocent people have been convicted as a result of, of losing that defense. But in any event, I'm talking about sort of the implications of it. Now, this law was brought in, as I said, July 1st, 2008. What happens if you were stopped uh, in impaired driving investigation on June 1st, 2008, and your trial was on August 1st, 2008. So your trial was a month after the law changed, but all of the evidence was collected and the incident took place before the law changed. What happens then? Well, Parliament did not write in any transitional provision to say whether or not it applied retrospectively or retroactively, applied to previous cases, or if it was just something going forward from that point. So the courts had to step in and resolve that. And before the law actually came into effect, all of the lawyers who were practicing and dealing with a lot of impaired driving cases and probably many of the judges had looked at it and said, wow, this is not resolved. But in any event, the first decision that we know of came from provincial court. It was a decision delivered off the bench. The judge heard uh, the arguments one day, came back and gave his decision the next day. This was up in uh, Haida Gwaii. It was in the provincial court, BC provincial court in Massive. And that was the first decision that we knew of 
And it said, uh, no, this is something that applies going forward. It changes what uh, what must be proven, and it's a fundamental change. It's taking away, basically, a defense. If you're going to take away a defense, you, you know, it's got to be fair. And, uh, and it, it can't uh, apply to uh, an older case. And this made perfect sense, because imagine you had your trial was scheduled for uh, May 30th, and your trial was adjourned because of a shortage of court time, and suddenly your trial was on July 5th. And you had a defense on May 30th that you couldn't run on July 5th as a result of the fact that there wasn't court time. Or you started your trial on June 15th, and you have to continue your trial because they ran out of court time. There's more evidence. You've got a, a police officer who speaks very slowly or something like that, and you end up in July on July 15th, and suddenly you don't have your defense anymore. That was a ridiculous circumstance. So that decision by that judge to us made perfect sense, uh, both from a policy perspective and from a legal perspective. See, the important thing here is the government was changing it to try and take away a defense they were trying to take away something that you could advance to show that you were innocent. And it would be a defense that was available to you before the law came into effect and not available to you after the law came into effect. The question was whether it was available to you if you committed the offense before the law came into effect and had your trial after the law came into effect. Unfortunately, Judges have different opinions on different things. And another judge in BC came along, decided the opposite, said, no, you don't, uh, you don't get that defense anymore, uh, regardless of when you were, uh, when you were charged. And that, that decision, in my mind, was very unfortunate. But this played out the same way in every other province across this country. We had judges who disagreed with each other. We had judges where they got together in one courthouse and said, in our courthouse, we're dealing with it this way. There were dozens and dozens of cases where this was argued. Now, let's think about this, okay? We've got a country of 36 million people, and we've got uh, hundreds and sometimes thousands of people who are facing uh, uh, drinking driving charges uh, in this country, and we've got dozens and dozens of judges who had to hear the arguments, lawyers for the Crown, police officers testifying, judges hearing the evidence, judges rendering decisions, uh, courtroom staff, courtrooms used. We're talking millions of dollars spent to resolve this one legal issue that really was a sort of a temporal legal issue. It only existed for a few years in any event because those cases would make their way through the court. But this eventually went to the Supreme Court of Canada. It took four years, over four years, before we got a decision that said essentially the same thing as that judge said in Massett, only not quite as eloquent, in my view, as the judge in Massett who gave the decision off the bench. So what happened? You're as you're a taxpayer, okay? We thank you for paying taxes. We're taxpayers too. We don't like to see tax money wasted. We don't like to see malinvestment or, or foolish spending. But really what happened, this thing that was thrust upon us by Mothers Against Drunk Driving cost the taxpayers in this country millions of dollars, millions of dollars to deal with that issue as it went through the court. Now, did it make any substantial change that was for the benefit of the Canadian population? I can tell you I've been defending these cases for a long time. You know, I'm coming up on two decades of defending drinking driving cases. I haven't lost a over 08 criminal drinking driving case since this law came into effect. One of the things that happened in the end was that lawyers upped their game. You know, we started looking at other aspects. We started recognizing, noticing, and getting disclosure showing that breathalyzers malfunction. And we got more and more of that disclosure. 
and we were able to to pick away at it and and you know, probably we're doing a better job than we ever did, but uh, it's it has not had the benefit that the government wanted. We haven't seen a flood of convictions, uh, certainly in BC, as a result of of uh, this legislative change, uh, eliminating essentially evidence of the contrary. Now, evidence of the contrary was not completely eliminated because the Supreme Court of Canada did strike down a portion of that law and, and set new rules, and that matter is going to be litigated for years to come. So we're talking millions of dollars for the retrospective application, which was a simple issue, uh, and then, you know, pile on the money for the next issue, which was resolve whether or not this legislation is unconstitutional. And it was found to be partially unconstitutional. And we think ultimately that legislation is going to have to to go away because innocent people can end up being convicted fairly easily as a result of it. So what's the lesson here? What am I telling you? Well, I'm telling you that these changes that are proposed by the federal government are not going to play out the way that they say. They're going to play out very differently. They're going to play out where you and I, taxpayer, are going to be paying to litigate all of these issues uh, all the way up. Some innocent people are going to end up convicted. That's going to be very unfortunate. We're going to be litigating these issues over and over for the next 20 years with the changes that are proposed. The changes that are proposed are much more substantive than the Conservatives getting rid of evidence to the contrary. They are a fundamental overhaul. And we've got years and years of investment that we've made in resolving the issues with respect to the current legislation. Those good court decisions that we've got in the current legislation are an investment that we have that clarify the law. And they're going to throw the law into disarray by making these changes. And we're going to have to spend all of that money again. It's like knocking down the house and rebuilding it and rebuilding it and rebuilding it uh, just because the whim of of basically a lobby group here pressuring the government. So uh, we're going to discuss a lot of that later on in another date. I just wanted to tell you sort of the untold story, the thing that uh, is not known about how it played out with the retrospective application of the law last time we had a fundamental change to drinking and driving law. It is a sort of a sad tale of wasted money. You think of all the things that that money could have been spent on that would have been to the benefit of our society. This is not something that we can say was to the benefit of our society in the end. It was just wasted money. And uh, we're looking at that happening again. So from one small change and one small issue of retrospective application, we ended up with four years of litigation and millions of dollars of lost money. Where are we going to get with this new legislation? Well, you have my prediction. So we will keep you up to date as the changes to the legislation are before the House of Commons and being discussed and debated, and we'll explain them a little bit more uh, in future podcasts, videos, and uh, blog posts. Thank you very much for your attention. Again, this is Paul Doroshenko. I'm a criminal lawyer in Vancouver with Acumen Law Corporation. We've got a number of locations. Our Vancouver office phone number is 604-685-8889. VancouverCriminalLaw.com you can find us at and acumenlaw.ca. Thanks a lot for listening.